0: See, life's not fair, but God is good. Amen. And God checks checkmates the devil all the time. Well, tonight we're going to do some more questions. And they are now well I announced Sunday and some of you didn't get a chance to make it, but I thought, why would I start a series two weeks before Easter? I'm going to wait till after Easter. So I'm doing more questions. And I, and I have some hot ones. I do. Uh, amen. So it's good to see all of you. How many of you came to hear First John tonight? I don't see how much trouble I'm in. Oh, a couple of them. Forgive me. I love you. You're going to like this anyway. All right. All right. <clears throat> let's, <clears throat> let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence tonight, your goodness tonight. That, Lord, you're speaking to us, you're here to minister to us, and we praise you for it. And, Lord, we pray that you will show yourself mighty. As we look into these questions and clear out the cobwebs and shine a light into some dark corners, and Lord, thank you for teaching us sound doctrine, the the true teaching of Scripture. We thank you for it right now. Now, will you breathe a prayer, dear church, and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive the word of God. Renew my mind. Transform me. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. Buckle your seat belts. Now, you know, a lot of people wonder, why would I do this? You know, take questions like this and, you know, this is our fifth week of these. Yes, I will take one of those. Thank you. I'm okay now, but this is just in case I'm not okay in a minute. Um, I got it. Yeah. Hmm. I need the lid. Thank you. Everybody say, I'm just so natural on Wednesday nights. I'm just relaxed. Are you relaxed? I'm relaxed. Okay. But I don't know what to do with it now. Here, Aaron. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to do that. Um, Now, tonight, why do I do this? Because so much is out there that is unbiblical. So many things are out there, even in, in churches, that are just just not real sound. And I think as we go along in the Christian walk and as we're exposed to our culture, which is dark and getting darker all the time, we, we get questions. We get Bible questions. We get theological questions. We get God questions. We want to know about different things. And if somebody doesn't sit down and answer them, the enemy, listen, the enemy loves working in the dark. He hates light. He loves working with questions, because when there's a question, he can insert false information. So I want to just try, you know, and I think I got now just about every question that's been given to me so far, although I saw that a couple of them came in tonight when I was all done for tonight, so they were still coming in, but um, I just want to just just pull some of the, the, the best ones, and I think the ones that probably all of us at some time or another wonder because folks sound doctrine is the cl- the glue to your spiritual walk if you don't have sound doctrine you're going to come unglued somewhere down the road you're going to come apart you're going to you're going to go sideways somewhere down the road sound doctrine sound teaching is the glue that holds our walk together okay so this is just another way for me to bring sound doctrine into our lives, because that's what I'm called to do. Now, here's the first question. I heard you say on the radio that the great tribulation is the wrath of God poured out on the world. I don't believe that the great tribulation is the wrath of God. It is the wrath of the prince of this world as he knows his time is short. I should talking about the devil. All right. Now, then she quotes Revelations 12, 12 to 14. I want to, I want to read it to you so you'll know what she's referring to. And I think it's a she. I don't know if it's a she. So anyway, let's read the verses they mention. For this reason, John writes, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that he only has a short time. Now she took that verse or they took that verse and said, that shows me that the wrath that takes place in the tribulation period is not the wrath of God, but it's the wrath of the devil based on this verse it's the wrath of the prince of this world because he's come down having great wrath. All right. Now, In order to better, here's the answer, in order to better understand this passage, we need to drop back a couple of verses and read verse 9, where we read about the devil being cast out. Look what it says. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of how much of the world? The whole world. He He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Now, the context, remember what I told you about context? Context is is prince in Bible interpretation. Context is key. All right? The context is, this is the great tribulation period going down. So we have the dragon, the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, thrown to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him, During the tribulation. Now hold that thought. We know from scripture that Satan was first cast out of heaven sometime in eternity past before the creation of the world. Right? How do we know that? Because when God created Adam and Eve, the devil shows up already fallen, already serpentine, already judged, already wicked and evil, And already trying to attack God's creation. Okay? So the devil had to originally be cast out sometime before God created the world. Are you with me? Uh, Isaiah 14, 12 tells us, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now there you got the devil falling from heaven. Now, and, and Ezekiel gives a much greater description, but I just didn't want to take the time to read it. We have much to cover tonight. But after this first casting out, somewhere before the dawn of time, we know that the devil had access to the throne room of God. At least God allowed him to show up. He didn't force his way in, but God allowed him to show up. How do we know this? The book of Job. Remember? Uh, the angels of God, the, the the sons of God, gathered together before the throne of God. And it says Satan came in among them and said, have you considered my servant Job? So there's the devil, fallen, judge, serpentine. He's the devil's split hoof, the evil one, all right? And there he is going before the throne of God. Now, this matters, so track with me. And Jesus also revealed that the devil did this with Simon Peter. Remember, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. Well, who did Satan request it of? God. And Jesus said, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail, and when you return, you will strengthen your brethren, and so on and so forth. So twice we're shown in the Bible that after the first casting out of Satan, after his initial judgment, and he became the devil and no longer Lucifer, the morning star, that he had access to the throne room of God. And he would, and God would allow him to come and, and basically attack or or slander his servants or seek access to them, like he did with Peter. Now, our verse in Revelations twelve twelve to fourteen shows that Satan will be cast out again during the tribulation period. Well, what's the difference? Here is where he loses all access to heaven. He is cast out again and loses all access to heaven. And the Bible says this infuriates him. And he comes down to the earth in great wrath. Why great wrath? Because he knows his time is short. He knows it's about to all go down. And he's about to face the judgment of God and put out of commission for good. So we have two casting outs then of the devil from heaven, essentially. When he fell and became a disembodied spirit and he became a devil and lost his position as a great archangel, all right, there's only three archangels, Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer, and they were high-level cherubim the highest level of cherubim, which are the highest order of angels. So of the three archangels, one of them rebelled against God, and he took a third of the angels with him. Now, this I thought about, and I'm just going to toss this out. Um, Why did he take a third? Because isn't it possible, since there were three archangels, that each of the three was given a third of the other angels to oversee So you had Michael had a third, Gabriel had a third, Lucifer had a third, and when Lucifer rebelled against God, he took his third with him. It's a thought. I can't, I'm not saying it's a fact. I'm saying it's a thought, and I think it's plausible. Okay. So now, so during the tribulation period, he's cast out again. He loses his access to heaven. So back to the question about the wrath experienced during the tribulation being Satan's wrath. The book of Revelation is very clear that the tribulation, which includes 21 judgments, remember, there's the seven seal judgments, the seven uh, trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments, and they, they escalate in severity so that by the time you come to the bowl judgments, it's terrible, 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 all caps, terrible on earth, and that is those judgments, those 21 judgments are not the wrath of the devil. It's the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. So I see where this person kind of arrived at that. And, and so I just answer, you know, humbly. And, I, and I'm not, you know, trying to say somebody was wrong. I understand how you could arrive at that. But the fact is, the revelation is the wrath of God. Let me show you. Revelations 15, 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them, read it with me, God's wrath is completed. There is a day coming when this world will enter the worst period of time it's ever known. And it's called the great tribulation. And during that tribulation time, God does pour out. 21 successive judgments that grow in severity so that by the time you reach the end, there's not much left of the planet. There's not much left. And then the Lord Jesus returns in the second coming with his saints and establishes his kingdom. You don't want to be here for the great tribulation time. Amen? You don't want to be here for that. That's why I say I believe that we'll be raptured out because we have not been appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So, I hope that helps that person. I hope it helps us. Now, here's another question. I believe that we, the church, will be here for the tribulation period. So here we go. What I just said, they don't agree. That's fine. We're both going to heaven still. If I go up in the rapture, they'll go with me too. If the rapture waits till the end of the tribulation period, I'll go up then with them. This is not a deal breaker, but this is another person. I believe we, the church, will be here for the tribulation period. But from studying scripture, I believe that Jordan, Israel, and the USA will escape the clutches of the Antichrist, the world government, and his control. Therefore, we will not be subject to taking the mark. That's interesting. I've never heard that one. I don't know where Jordan comes from here, but let me just dive in. As for Israel, uh, Jordan, and the USA being exempt from Antichrist, world government, I got to go to the word of God. My authority is the scripture. I'm not up here to give an opinion. I'm up here to the best of my ability to teach the word of God. Amen? So I got to turn to scripture. That's my authority. Every truth I accept is biblical as much as lies within me. If somebody tells me something is true, I go straight to the word and I see if it's true. If I don't find it in the word, then I say, that's not true. I say, well, Jeff, that's very narrow. That's a, it's a narrow way that leads to life. It's narrow, but it's not stupid. It's narrow, but it's not unintelligent. As a matter of fact, my decision to let the word of God be my ultimate and only and primary source of truth It's because I've studied it for a long time and seen that it's true every time. And I believe it's the very word of God. And since God is God and we're not, whatever God says has to be truer than anything any human being could ever come up with. So I believe God's truth with morality. I believe it with ethics. I believe it with eschatology, meaning what's going to happen in the future. I believe that God's word, Jesus said, thy word is truth. So, let me answer it based on Scripture. The Bible says, and it was granted to him to make war. John writes, and it was granted to him to make war. This is out of the Revelation. It was granted to him being Antichrist to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over how many tribes? Every. Tongue, and nation, every tribe, tongue, and nation will experience for a brief season Antichrist having authority over them or exercising his authority in, in where they are worldwide. Now let's read another one. Revelations 13, 16. He causes how many? Now, last time I looked in the Greek, all meant all. That means all, right? He causes all. Then John enumerates, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or forehead. Now, that's not telling us that everybody in every realm, in every ethnicity, every tribe and nation, that every single human being is going to receive the mark. It's saying that in every nation and ethnicity and tribe, there will be multitudes of people receiving the mark. So the words, look at the words, all, every, and all. Make it very clear, nobody is going to escape the short-lived rule of Antichrist. Now, you notice it says God gives him, uh, I guess, the authority or permission to make war with the saints and overcome them. Now, church, you need to understand that while us, the church, this church, we, the church, are taken out before the great tribulation period, all kinds of people are going to be born again during the tribulation. Uh, we call them tribulation saints. Tribulation saints, that's why sometimes I have cut CDs preaching and i thought, you know, what, what if somebody during the tribulation gets a hold of this CD and receives some encouragement? You know, I've thought about that before. But um, here's the deal. There will be tribulation saints galore because 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams are going to be preaching the gospel all over the globe. And multitudes are going to come to Christ, but it'll be a totally different world culture because the Antichrist will be a totalitarian dictator and will track every Christian who doesn't receive the mark. What's the mark? It's a number on the back of your hand or on your forehead. And I've, I've, I have blogged and I've done some studying through the months that now... Uh, there's universities right now where they have put chips under the skin of college students' hands so that when they buy things at the university, they just run it through a scanner and it charges them and they never have to pull out a card or cash or anything. It's a total cashless transaction. And, and this is spreading now because you, it used to just be animals. You know, you get that chip. And the chip tells you the basic info about your dog or your cat or whatever. And they can call you. But now it's gone to human beings. It's a fact. I've got the articles. It's a fact. They're getting chips. And I've seen the chip. It's a little teeny computer thing. Little tiny chip. uh, Sort of about the size of a, a smaller than a kernel of corn. And it goes right under the hand. But it's got all your info in it. And you don't feel it, you don't see it, but it's there and you run it under a scanner and you're charged. Now, now, how in the world could John, sitting in the first century on an island, almost 90, receive information about modern day technology, 21 centuries later, beyond him, there's only one way. God, who knows the end from the beginning. God showed him because now what he said, the whole computer tracking system, John saw it coming. And boy, when I blogged that, you ought to have seen the responses. When I showed that article, well, I'm not getting no mark. I ain't getting that mark. That to kill me before I get that mark. But some people, oh, it's not that big a deal. See? Oh, yes, it is. You'd have to tie me down. Listen, nobody's putting something under my skin with my information on it. I'm just letting you know. I don't care if it's easier. I'll take credit card theft before I'll get a chip in my hand or my forehead. Now, but it's happening. It's happening. So every nation, every tongue, ethnicity, everyone will come under this command to take the mark of the beast, 666, which I believe will end up being 3 sets of 6 digits like a computer system would do 3 sets of 6 digits each and that way you can mark the whole world and that's what'll happen amen how many of you are glad you're saved you glad you're saved amen now here comes here comes a theological bell ringer and you're going to have to put on your thinking hats with me on this one. What are your thoughts on predestination and why it seems to have become a popular idea throughout the Christian community? I had never heard of Calvinism until the last couple of years. How many of you have heard of Calvinism? How many of you have never heard of Calvinism? How many of you have heard of it, but you don't care what it is? All right. All right. <laughs> All right, that's all right. You know, don't worry. Be happy. Ignorance is bliss, right? All right. Now, let me just talk about this. And here's why I I wanted to answer this one. Because there is a surge of Calvinism happening in the West. I don't know about the Eastern part of the world. But I know in the Western world, particularly in America, there's a surge of Calvinism. You need to understand it because it's doctrine. And remember, doctrine is the glue that holds your walk together. So here we go. What is Calvinism? Where did it come from? All right, first, Calvinism is a theological belief system that brought predestination, that million-dollar theological word, predestination, into major focus. And I'm going to tell you what that means in a minute, predestination. Calvinism originated with John Calvin. John Calvin, who was born in 1509, and died in 1564 at the age of 55. But he was a brilliant guy. He was. Calvin was a brilliant guy. Uh, um, really was. Brilliant theologian. Doesn't mean he was right on everything. He was a French theologian. And he was a pastor. And he was a reformer in the town of Geneva during the Protestant Reformation. And who do we think of when we hear the words Protestant Reformation? Say his name. Martin Luther. And Calvin was a principal figure in the development of the system of Christian theology that later bore his name. Now, Calvinism includes the doctrines of predestination, which is a Bible word. You ought not yawn, and not, nobody's yawning. And I'm just saying you shouldn't yawn. Nobody did yawn. I'm not getting on anybody. Somebody was just like this, and boy, they went down real quick. I wasn't getting on anybody. I'm just saying. We, we read these big words and we go, well, I, I just don't really care. But that's a Bible word that's very important because you were predestined. Okay? You were predestined. So we ought to understand predestination. And we're going to when I'm done. Now, Calvinism includes the doctrines of predestination and the absolute sovereignty of God as it relates to salvation of the soul, from death and eternal damnation. Now, let me tell you what it means. Well, first of all, the recent popularity of Calvinism, they want to know, why is Calvinism all of a sudden, every time I turn around, I'm hearing Calvinism. I believe the surge in Calvinism, Calvinism is due in part to the spread of reform churches. When you hear today of a reformed church, well, it's a reformed church. They're going to a reformed church. What does that mean? It generally means they look to Calvin. As the chief expositor of their beliefs, they look to Calvin. They are Calvinists in Reformed churches. All right? Now, they're not, listen, I thank God for Reformed churches in, in, in this respect. They are taking us back to genuinely studying the Bible and studying doctrine, which is the glue that keeps your walk together. They're studying doctrine that you don't get a whole lot of in charismatic type churches, which I have been born into and and I've been in charismatic churches my whole life. But charismatic churches, and I'll be the first to tell you as a charismatic church guy, charismatic churches are generally not so great at doctrine. They're long on experience and short on doctrine. I believe you ought to be half and half. You ought to have both. Strong on doctrine but also fully open to the moving of the Holy Spirit as long as it's biblical, right? As long as it's biblical. Let me move on, and I'll maybe have some time to take some questions in a minute. Yeah, and I am interdenominational, not non, which sounds like anti, but inter, which means everybody's welcome. Now, let me look at Calvinistic predestination. What is it? What is predestination? Calvinistic predestination includes the belief that God appointed the eternal destiny of some to salvation by grace while leaving all others to receive eternal damnation for all their sins. Wait a minute. Did you get that right? Let me read that again. Here's Calvinistic predestination. It's the belief that God appointed the eternal destiny of some to salvation by grace. God appointed it. For some, while leaving all others to receive damnation for their sins. This is called also unconditional election. If God elects to save me, I'm going to be saved. If he doesn't elect to save me, I'm not going to be saved. It's all up to what is called irresistible grace. Who can resist the irresistible grace of God if he has chosen me or predestined me to be saved who can resist his irresistible grace I'm going to come to him no matter what but if I have not been chosen predestined by God to be saved you can preach the gospel to me every day 30 times a day for the rest of my life I'm never going to get saved because I have not been predestined by God to be saved that's that's Calvinistic predestination everybody say Amen or owe oh me? Well, I got all, a bunch of oh me's. <laughs> now, they want to know, what do you think about it? What do you think about it? All right, here's what I think about it. I don't believe this view of predestination lines up with scripture. However, the Bible does teach predestination, but not Calvinistic predestination. Here, listen carefully. I'm going to show you the difference. Bible predestination is where God has predetermined not who is saved, but the character of the saved. Let me say it again. God did not choose Jeff Wickwire to be saved and and everybody in my family to be lost. God, when when I got saved, number one, God knew I was going to get saved. He foreknew That I would be saved. He foreknew when you would be saved. God did not get up there. Even though some of you think so. God did not sit on his throne in heaven. And when you got saved. Say oh my I can't believe it. No you know what he says. I knew you were coming all the time. I knew you were coming. I knew you were coming. I foreknew. God never says oops. And he never says well I'll be. See, because he knows the end from the beginning. A lot of people around me were real shocked when I got saved. But God wasn't shocked. And God wasn't shocked when you got saved. He knew the day, the hour, the second, the moment you would be saved. He foreknew. He foreknew. That's an important word too. Foreknew. He foreknew, but he didn't foreordain. Now follow me. Let me read it again. Let me be sure we get this. Bible predestination is where God has predetermined not who will be saved, but the character of the saved. Listen to Romans 8, 28 to 29. And we love this verse. And here's what it says. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, According to his purpose for whom he what foreknew he foreknew notice very important he foreknew but he didn't foreordain he foreknew those he foreknew here comes the word he also read it predestined to be what conform to the image of of his son. So what was predestined? Not your salvation, your future character as a child of God. That we would eventually be conformed to the image of his son. So when we say uh, very regularly in churches, we, we say, oh, it's all going to work together for your good. I think we don't know sometimes what that really means. What is he talking about in this verse? What is going to be the good everything is worked out for? That we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's not about character. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. Against such there is no law. Are you you hearing me, church? This is deep stuff. We're going through some, this is some T-bone theological steak. This is not milk. This is predestined, and all kinds of people get hung up on that word. I mean, we got whole denominations that that were birthed out of this word, this one word, predestined. He foreknew who would be saved, and hence he predestined them to be like Jesus. So it has nothing to do with who. It has to do with the character of who gets saved. Predestined. See, God's made up his mind. No matter what you go through, it's going to make you more like Jesus. God has predestined it. God has predestined when you get betrayed, when you get hurt, when you're disappointed, when you're heartbroken, when you have loss, when you don't understand God's hand, when you're wondering how come you went through this and you went through that and the other, where was God? Why didn't he stop it? Uh, how's God going to get anything out of this? Listen, I want you to say with me, God never wastes a pain. God never, say it again, God never wastes a pain. Give him a hand of praise. Come on. He never wastes a pain. Well, what does he do with the pain? He has ordained, he has predestined. All things are going to work towards his ultimate goal of us being conformed to the image of his son. So really... If you're a believer, you're in a win-win. You can't lose. You're in a win-win. You cannot lose because God is predestined no matter what you go through, he's going to weave it into the tapestry of your life, and he's going to to mold and shape Jesus into you. Amen. Amen. So God's predestination has to do with our character once we're saved. We've been predestined to grow into the character, the likeness, and the image of his son. We have also been predestined to heaven. Once a person is saved, it is part of God's eternal predestined plan that they should go to heaven. Now, I, I came up with this illustration. I'm gonna be the first to tell you it's simplistic. And if you were to pick it apart, if I was to bring in a bunch of college uh, theology professors, they would probably tear it apart. But I'm trying to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. So I made I came up with this illustration. This is mine. I own it. Look at it like this. Let's say the entire human race is offered a free ticket to board a train whose destination is a beautiful ocean village. Sound good? Anyone who doesn't take a ticket, and remember the ticket's free, will suffer a massive fire that will one day engulf them. Many men and women are sent out into the crowd of humanity with the good news that these free tickets are available. Hey, I got free tickets, free tickets for the train that's going to the ocean view. All the recipients must do is confess that they have muddy shoes and must receive new clean shoes in order to board the train. Once done, they're saved from what is coming. Now listen, Calvinism would say there is no choice, but those that receive tickets are chosen to receive them to the exclusion of everyone else. And all others have no hope of a ticket Only those chosen will board the train to safety headed for the beautiful ocean town. So you don't have a bunch of people going out and waving the tickets and saying, take one, they're free. But you have them going out, walking up to certain individuals and say, you've been chosen, here's your ticket. While all around them are people that are going to be engulfed in those flames and they never have a chance for a ticket. There you have Calvinism. Does that sound like God to you? Does this sound like love to you? No. Does this square with the God that Jesus introduced to us in the New Testament? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can you see Jesus doing that? Can you see Jesus doing this? Here, I got got a ticket for you and a ticket for you, but the rest of you can, can go to Hades. Can you see Jesus doing that? I ask you. But now, good people who, who, who I love, who I know, believe this. And I can sit down and I can, I can eat lunch with them and, and, and we can talk about Jesus. If we get into this, yeah, we're going to lock horns a little bit because I can't go. I could not preach the gospel if I believe that. Why preach the gospel if I believe that? If irresistible grace is going to get them, why bother? Okay. There's all kinds of Bible verses that refute Calvinistic predestination, not predestination, but Calvinistic predestination. Here's a few. Then Peter opened his mouth and said In truth I perceive that God what everyone shows no partiality. Well if he doesn't show partiality, then he can't pick and he's not gonna pick and choose somebody to be saved and most of the world to be lost. Uh uh-uh. uh. Now listen to Titus two eleven. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to how many men? All. All. Here's 1 Timothy 2. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires how many men? All All men. To be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wait a minute. I just read that God desires how many men? All. All men. To be what? Saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, then how then can he be cherry-picking who's going to be saved and who isn't? Because he wants all men. And I have to believe that when I stand up and preach, that that whoever is lost in this sanctuary or by radio or whatever, whoever is lost, all of them have a chance to choose to be saved, to repent, to come to Christ. Now, and, and here's another thing. How can I repent if the grace of God... Is telling me not to. In other words. If I'm not chosen. Why am I called to repent? Because if I'm not chosen. I can't repent. Because I'm either under irresistible grace. Or I'm not. If I'm not under irresistible grace. How can I repent? How can I tell all men to repent. When for most of them. God has not allowed them to repent. It's a contradiction in terms. Is it not? Am I right or wrong about this? Now for God so here's my favorite God so loved what the world that he gave his only begotten son to whoever whoever i'm going to pick the king james whosoever i like that one better whosoever believes in him whosoever every whosoever in here raise your hand if you're a whosoever yeah you're a whosoever all right you're a whosoever every person out there walking around breathing air is a whosoever Whosoever believes in him. Whosoever believes in him. Not whoever is chosen by God to the exclusion of everybody else, but whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the bottom line, our eternal destiny, and that is heaven or hell, is based entirely on personal choices we make based upon our own free will. If we end up in hell, we can only blame ourselves. And I heard somebody think, Jeff, if you read your Bible, there is no free will. If there's no free will, why did Joshua say, as for me and my, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, how can I choose this day, Joshua, if I can't choose? So my answer to the original question is, Listen, I, like I said, I have friends that are Calvinists, and, and, and I love them. You know, we're, we're good. I just part with them on this. I don't see how you can square this with the God of love. Uh, but you know what? They'll go to heaven when I do. If the rapture happens, I'll go when they do, and they'll go when I do. And when we get up there in front of Jesus, he'll make it all clear. Right? He will. He'll say, hey, Jeff was right. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Having fun with you. All right. Now, we're moving along. Are you all being blessed tonight? See, you've got some real theology tonight. This is theology. So everybody say, I'm predestined, I'm predestined. to the character of Christ. Amen. Give the Lord praise tonight. Now, here's another question. I know that some would say we should never question God's actions. But why did the Spirit of the Lord leave Saul? And why would a harmful spirit enter Saul? All right, let me just read the verse where this happened. 1 Samuel 16, 14 says, The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And I gave you some more verses where that's mentioned. Now, let's talk about this. Because this is the Old Testament. Not often do you read in the Old Testament about evil spirits and, and whatnot. They really came to the fore when Jesus began his ministry. But here we've got an evil spirit mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, first, the evil spirit, it says, was from the Lord. And that means it was allowed by God to harass Saul. Ultimately, all created things are under God's control. Do you know that? All created things. The devil's a dog on a leash. Can I say it again? The devil's a dog on a leash. The devil doesn't move without God allowing him to move. I don't understand that. I can't explain it. I just know it's true. Because if I were God, I'd shut him down today and end this whole thing. But I'm not God. But all created things are under God's control. That's what the Bible talks talks about, the sovereignty of God. It's likely that this evil spirit was part of God's judgment upon Saul for disobedience. Saul had directly disobeyed God on two key occasions. When he offered an offering only the priest was ordained to do, when he felt that Samuel was late and God was testing him to see if he would trust God when it looked like everything was about to fall down around him, he made an offering only the priest was ordained to make. And then when he spared wicked King Agag, when Samuel had said, you've got to kill him, and Saul did not kill him, or many of the livestock that, that Samuel had said, kill. And Samuel gave those famous words. What is this bleeding of the sheep I hear? So therefore, because of his disobedience, God removed his spirit from Saul and allowed an evil spirit to torment him. Likely, Satan and the demons had always wanted to attack Saul, but God was now simply giving them permission to do so. You know why? Because he opened a door. Oh, I tell you, we need to have a, just a one-night, Wednesday-night message on doors. The importance of doors. How you can open a door that'll bless the rest of your life and you can open a door, oh my, that you try to shut it later. You try to lock it later. You try to slam it shut and chain it. (sighs) Opening it was a whole lot easier than shutting it. We need to have a message on doors because you can open up a door and open yourself up to a world of hell. Or you can open up a door and open up to a world of heaven. Doors. Everybody say doors. See, Saul opened up a door and and the enemy got him. Now, second, the evil spirit, look at the sovereignty of God at work here. The evil spirit was used to bring David into Saul's life because David had been anointed to be the next king. Only Samuel and his family knew it. And so God is, God is moving to get David in proximity to the castle, to the kingdom. And so he uses Saul's problem. See, God always uses problems. How many of you know God uses problems? If I never had a problem, I never know that God could solve them. That's what Andre Crouch wrote. Now listen, God uses problems. You think you've got a really bad problem and it's vexing you, but listen, that problem may be used by God to bring you to a whole new level of authority and power and walk with him. Oh, yes, I know what I'm talking about because I know my Bible. See, Saul had a problem. He'd open up a door and then now he's being tormented by the devil, but that, that torment, that problem became the vehicle that brought David into his life. Oh, man, I could so preach on that for the rest of the night and just call it a night. Amen. I got to move on now. It says, 1 Samuel sixteen fifteen to 16, reveals, when the king's servants saw the torment Saul was enduring, they suggested, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. They're talking to Saul here. Let our Lord command his servants to search for someone who can play the lyre, the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. Got the first mention here of anointed music. Anointed music drives demons crazy. If it's really anointed music, it drives the devil crazy. devil's hassling you just start worshiping God. Fingernails on hell's chalkboard. Right? Now, so the sovereignty of God was at work in all of this. Saul disobeyed God, opened the door of satanic harassment. Yet God, who never causes evil but uses evil, man's evil designs to weave together his plan, used Saul's torment to bring David into his presence and into proximity to the kingdom in which he would be king down the road. Even though the spirit of God had fallen upon Saul, and anointed king, He made choices that forfeited his anointing. And that ought to scare us all. He made choices that forfeited his anointing. He made some choices that were very costly. Now, as to whether or not he was saved, I believe the Bible says yes. They want to know if he was saved. When Samuel appeared to him the night before his death, he said, the Lord will deliver, this is Samuel talking, the Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. Now read the next part with me. And tomorrow you, come on everybody, you and your sons will be with me. Well, Samuel had died and he was with God in what we've often talked about here in the good part of Hades. Amen. And he said, tomorrow, Saul, you and, you and your sons you're going to be killed tomorrow. But he didn't say you're going to go to the bad part of Hades. He said you're going to be with me. So that's how I know he was saved. Okay? I got one more. You want one more? Well, It's about tithing. Are you sure? Oh, oh, okay. We'll see you. No, I'm kidding. Here we go. Dear Pastor, this is an interesting question. Dear Pastor, if only one of two spouses pays tithe at church, how does the promise of God in Malachi three ten to 12 get fulfilled in the household? So here's what they're wanting to know. Uh, they're, they're wanting to know if God will still bless a household with two incomes, if only one of the two spouses tithes. Here's my answer to that. First, God looks on the heart. You believe that? God looks on the heart of every person. The Bible teaches that God deals with us as individuals. My grandmother's faith ain't going to get me into heaven. My faith's going to get me into heaven, okay? Um, I'm not going to pay for my father's sins. My father pays for his sins, all right? Um, We all answer to God as individuals, and he deals with us as individuals. The Bible says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Read it with me, everyone. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that says, look, nobody can work it out for you but you. Okay? It's each man's own walk and work and faith and Christianity. No human friend, no pastor, Not even an apostle like Paul can work it out for you. We will answer the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, we will not answer for sin. Our sin is forgiven. But we will answer for our works. How did we obey Christ? What did we do for his glory? How much of our time did he get? How much of our gifting did he get? How much did we sow into the kingdom of God or not? And that is what we will be rewarded for or not. At the judgment seat of Christ. All right. So I believe the Lord will bless the giving spouse with things the non giver will not enjoy. Amen. Amen. Now, let me add a little addendum to this because she mentioned Malachi three ten to twelve. So I'm going to say something that'll shock you. But Malachi three ten to twelve is not one of those Old Testament verses that is carried over in the New Testament. I've told you one of the golden rules of interpretation is if you have an Old Testament law and it's carried over into the New Testament, it's good for you you and me. It's good for the New Covenant. It's good for Christians. But if it's not carried over in the New Covenant, into the New Testament, then it's not valid for us. Now follow me. I don't believe that the person that doesn't give will be cursed by God. That was for the people of Malachi's time. And it was a particular people, for a particular time doing a particular thing wrong. They were they had come back from the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and they were focusing totally on their own homes and not the temple of God. So God said, "Look, what are you doing?" He said, he said, "You can't be putting yourself first. You got to put me first. So I want you to tithe to the temple so the temple priests And the workers around the temple will have what they need to finish building the temple. And the tithe he's talking about wasn't money. It was crops. It was food, not money. It was so they could eat. It was so they had enough to run the ship. Okay? So those verses were given to Israel when they had forsaken the building of the temple were focused only on their own homes. I Look, I've read the New Testament. I've, I've looked at this. Some of you are thinking, well, you're, you're committing suicide teaching this to a local church. No, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I just can't find in the New Testament God cursing people for not giving. Show it, if you can show me the chapter and verse... I'll change my message next next week. I'll get up and tell everybody I was wrong. But see, Malachi says you are cursed with a curse. Why are we cursed with a curse? Because you have not been giving your tithe. But the deal is, in the New Testament, I don't find that. I don't find it. New Testament giving is grace-driven, out of a thankful heart. It's not mandated by law. Listen, Christians are under the law of grace and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not the letter of the law. Now, let me ask you a question here as we close. If 10% was what they had to give in the Old Testament of their crops, their firstborn uh, of cattle and so on and so forth, if they had to give 10% by law, then shouldn't grace-driven giving be even more than that? Seriously, come on. If I'm under... The letter of the law and I got to give 10% or I'm cursed, man, I'm going to give that 10%. But if I'm under New Testament grace and God says in, in Corinthians, he says, whatever you decide in your heart to give, give. But look, if under the law, which brought death, it was 10%, what should it be under grace? So see, I have confidence that grace-driven giving will exceed law-driven giving. Am I right? I mean, you can agree or not agree, about that's what I've come to. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. If Jesus himself placed such a huge premium on giving, where are the hearts of those who don't? For Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If my treasure is in heaven and I love Jesus, it's nothing to me to give to his work. Who would not want to give to the Lord's work if it helps reach people with the gospel? Who would not want to? If you're truly grateful to God. It's been my choice uh, for as far back as I can remember to give 10%. I tithe. It was my choice to tithe. I've tithed my whole life. I've tithed 10%. Often a little more than 10%. Give to this, give to that, give to somebody whatever, I'm not in any way patting myself on the back, but I, I know this. If they had to give 10% under law, I'm under grace. If the law is passing away, then, and, and Jesus is near, and I'm under grace, then I ought to be fully open to, man, blessing his work, because whatever I give to, I empower it to continue. Amen. So I'm not telling you to not give. I'm telling you I'm telling you, think about where you are and what God has done for you and that you're under grace. And I would hope that if everybody in the church gave, we would be out of debt so fast. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'll close with this. I know I've said that twice, but I really will here. I had a friend who was a millionaire. And we used to go to breakfast, lunch, wherever. He had a habit of leaving his wallet. He was the millionaire. And we would eat, and then and then when the ticket came, he'd go, Oh man, Jeff, I forgot my wallet. Can you pick it up? Now, he would do that with whole tables of people. I thought that's how I got to be a millionaire. But see, watch this. There are people who come to church for a long time and never give. You know what they're saying? I enjoyed the feast, I enjoyed the meal. Oops, can you pick up the tab? Oops, man, I just forgot to write that check before I walked out. I'm sorry. See, to me, after a while, if you're being blessed by the house, you should support the house so that the house, yeah, yeah. And don't be a freeloader. Don't let everybody else pick up the tab. Oop, oop, forgot that wallet. Man, I just forgot. Let's stand together, can we? <laughs> Wasn't that good tonight? Amen? Well, you got a theological education 101. You did well tonight. All right. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that Easter is right around the corner. Help us to invite somebody to the house of God. Each one reach one. Everyone bring one. Each one reach one. Everyone bring one. Now, Lord, bless us as we go. Thank you, Lord, that you predestined us to be like Jesus. Thank you for the glorious day. We repented and got saved. Thank you for the washing of the blood of the Lamb, and thank you for our eternal destiny in God.